Hello and happy Mother's Day weekend, my dudes. I hope you haven't forgotten that this weekend is Mother's Day because it is and it's tomorrow, so you have 24 hours to get something great. And if not, good luck. This episode is a little shorter than usual, but I did that on purpose so that you guys have more time to go be with your moms. That could be your gift to your mom, is just sitting next to her. If you don't get to spend much time with your mom, just say hi. But while you are listening, I do want to tell you about today's guest. His name is Philip Goley, and he is a bit of a local celebrity, definitely known around the country by a few people. He's an author and a storyteller and a professional speaker. He's a local Quaker pastor and also someone that I have grown up knowing was really, really wise and had a lot of good truth to share with everyone. So listen close, because I learned a lot from this interview. So without further ado, here's Mr. Phil Goley. Mr. Goley, how are you? I'm well, how are you? I'm good. It's a little bit rainy today, which is kind of sad, but I'm having a good day. So I'm going to introduce you just for this interview for the podcast. You are a Quaker pastor. You've been coined the voice of small town American life, which I think is very true. You've written 24 books. Is that true? 24? What? 22 books. 22. Okay. 22 books about your childhood and growing up in Danville. And you have the Harmony series. I know you have Front Porch Tales. Living the Quaker Way, and I read I Love You, Mrs. Is it, it's Hiddleston, right? I Love You, Miss Hiddleston, when I was it, younger. It, it, it's Huddleston. Huddleston, sorry. Okay, I read I Love you, you, Miss Huddleston. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. I'll just jump in on the first question. What inspired you to write these in the first place, to put pen to paper? Well, I was pastoring a um, small Quaker meeting on the east side of Indianapolis, and the people at that meeting, uh, at that Quaker meeting, decided we needed a church newsletter and asked me to write an essay for the front page, uh, you know, kind of like a note from the pastor kind of thing. And so I just started writing stories about uh, growing up in Danville, and someone sent them to a publisher who phoned me and asked if I wanted to have a book published. And I said, sure, and that's how I got started. So your first book is a collection of those essays? Right, a book called Front Porch Tales. Gotcha. I love that. (laughs) To talk specifically about one of your books, it's called Living the Quaker Way, The Timeless Wisdom for a Better Life. Today, you discuss the values of the Quaker faith. Those are uh, equity, simplicity, peace, integrity, community, and equality. And those aren't prominent qualities today for a lot of people. What is some advice that you have on how to exhibit those in our daily lives? Uh, Well, I think I think what's happened, in, in, especially in the United States, is a divorce between our public policies and our political beliefs from our morality. So that uh, while, we, while we claim to value certain things, we act in ways that really conflict and contradict with our claimed values. Um, so that there's a real inconsistency between how we live and what we claim to value. The Quaker emphasis has always been on the merging of the two so that there is no distinction between how we live and what we claim to value. And uh, so that's why rather than focusing on what theologians call creedalism, just making certain belief statements, we've instead emphasized what we call the testimonies. And those are simplicity, peace, integrity, community, and equality. And uh, obviously in today's 
culture where those uh, virtues are so glaringly absent from the top on down. That book was intended to kind of remind us of what uh, we know is the best way to live, but aren't doing it. So in that sense, it's kind of a call to arms that if we're going to make it in this world, we're going to have to start working together and start caring less about power and caring more about the community in which we live and the people in it. And ultimately understanding that that community isn't just the towns in which we live, but in fact, it's the entire world that we need to be global citizens. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like it's a lot more of a practicing what you preach sort of outlook. Yes. Uh, Quakers have a saying, let your life speak. So rather than you speaking and telling people how to be, you let your life do that. You make sure your life is a witness to good and a witness to justice. Let your life speak. Mm-hmm. I think we could all learn from that for sure. Something yeah. that really surprised me one day, uh, I went to visit my great grandma Kate. You may have heard the story before, but I went to visit my great grandma Kate in Wablo, Missouri, and she started telling us about an author that wrote these hilarious and charming stories about the things going on in this small town called Harmony. And she uh-huh. was the mayor of her town in Wablo, and the way that she loved her town reminds me a lot of the way that you love our town here. What do you appreciate most about your upbringing here, and why have you ever? lived in a city? What did you think of it? Uh, I lived in the city for 10 years on the east side of Indianapolis, uh, pastoring kind of an inner city Quaker meeting. I discovered that the neighborhood in which I was located had uh, much of the virtues and qualities of small towns. I knew my neighbors. We visited back and forth. We took care of one another. We cared for each other. And in some ways, I found the same qualities and virtues of small town life living in the city. Um, what I liked about growing up in Danville was the freedom I had. I don't know if that was a consequence of a small town life or if it was more my parents' approach to life. I never had a curfew. From the age of 10 on, I was allowed to go camping by myself, ride my bicycle anywhere I wanted. I remember when I was 13, I rode with a group of friends over to uh, Turkey Run State Park and spent a week. I was just allowed all of these freedoms as a kid. And I think if I'd grown up in the city, my parents would have been a bit more anxious for my safety. But uh, as it was growing up in Danville in the 60s and 70s, what I remember and treasure the most are these memories of freedom, of doing what I wanted. And it was assumed that I would act responsibly and that if I didn't, I would lose my freedom. But, you know, I was... uh, behave myself. And when I didn't behave myself, I made sure my parents never found out about it. (laughs) Sounds like a good plan. (laughs) (laughs) It worked. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I've definitely experienced some of that too here as well. When you live in town and can walk places, you know, I remember as a younger kid, I could go more places. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yes. I know that you're a great storyteller just from your books and from knowing you a little bit. If you were to just sit down with someone and they were to simply say, tell me a story, what would that story be? Oh, gosh. You know, I, I tend to try to make the story fit the, the circumstance. I do a lot of public storytelling, traveling and doing storytelling. And I always want to know something about where I'm going to be and the issues that community is facing. And uh, and then I try to make a, a story fit that and speak to that situation. And I think that's what good storytelling should do. Uh, 
it's interesting to me that um, probably the best-known American storyteller was Mark Twain. And his book, Huckleberry Finn, came out. And people look at that and they say, well, that's the exploits, the stories of a young Huck fan floating down the Mississippi. No, it wasn't. It was a story about a young white man and an older black man who had been uh, treated shamefully by his nation and the dignity and the friendship that this young white man found in this black man. Uh, at first reading, it, it, it seemed like it was about an American childhood. What it really was was an American story about inequality and how we ought to be with one another. And, and that's what made that story powerful. I think the same thing can be said uh, about To Kill a Mockingbird. It really wasn't just a story about a little girl named Scout and her recollections of life in Alabama. It was a story about a man unjustly accused who happened to be black and what became of that and how that town treated him. Um, and it became a powerful story because it was written in the midst of the civil rights struggle in America and, um, and made us think about what we were doing and how we had been. And I think that's what good storytelling does. It, so, you, so it seems to me that a prerequisite for being a good storyteller is being acutely aware of what's happening in your culture. When we were trying to decide as a nation how to treat gay people and whether or not to have marriage equality, I started telling stories about marriage and, and gay people and what that meant. Uh, and now that our culture is so resistant to uh, Hispanic people and immigrants, especially poor immigrants, I tend to tell stories about immigrants that I've known. So I try always to be aware of what's happening culturally. And that's the fun thing about fiction. You can, I wrote a story the other day about the coronavirus and it was fiction. I made it all up. None of it was true, but uh, it spoke to the fears and challenges that we have now. Mm -hmm. You mentioned some, some stories that you say are fictional and, or that you tell are fictional and some are true. I know that some of your books are about, you know, true stories about your childhood, but when writing a fictional story, do you draw a lot of inspiration from your own life or where do you get your inspiration for some of the stories that oh oh, oh sure yeah. yeah and every every writer does that yeah every writer does that and that, that's the fun thing about fiction people talk about fiction and say well what's fiction well that fiction is stuff that isn't true uh no uh fiction might be about things that aren't historically factual but there is truth Fiction tells us who we are and what we, how we act and what we believe and what we think. It may not be historically true or accurate or factual, but uh, it is. But that doesn't mean it isn't existentially true. So there's always this fine line, you see, between what I write as an essay purporting to be factual and what I write as, an, as a storyteller, uh, which people say is uh, fictional. And I say, well, it's fictional, but... But it's still true. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. And so sometimes I tell people, well, it really didn't happen this way, but it's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The lesson is true. Yeah, the lesson is true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, like we just said, some of the stories that you say are fictional, but, uh, you know, some are true and they're very comforting and positive escape from, rea from reality currently. And they may have been your reality at one point, but to read them now is really, really, you know, has, they have a lot of warmth to them. But what have you been doing mm -hmm. to deal with the negative information that's all around us today? Well, uh, I, th I tell you what I've been doing, or I've encouraged by Quaker Meeting to do, is just to uh, devote our time and our resources to helping others. And so um, 
I've been doing a lot of uh, lawn mowing for people who can't. Uh, I've been doing uh, working with members of my congregation to get food out to people who are hungry, who've lost their jobs. Then uh, as these stimulus checks come in, uh, a number of people, of uh, friends and associates, don't need that money. Their jobs have not been affected. They're well off. And they don't need the $1,200 the government is setting. And so uh, I'm working with a group of people that direct those funds, urge people to donate those funds so we can direct them for people who desperately need them, people who've lost their jobs, people who've lost their health care. Um, it's a shame to me that uh, I'm happy to do this and honored to do it and want to do it, but it's a shame to me that we haven't created the kind of nation where that even has to happen, uh, where if people lose their jobs, they also lose access to health care just when they need it the most. And so um, I think the question then for us becomes not only what are we doing now, the question becomes what are we going to do when this is over? Are we going to finally create the kind of society, the kind of nation that really works for everyone and not just the wealthy? Or are we going to continue to insist that those who have lesser means should suffer as deeply as they do? What kind of nation will we be? Because it seems to me that America is becoming a, uh, a land that blesses the rich with little regard for the, the growing lower income groups. Mm -hmm. You just gave us a little bit of insight into this as to the specific things that you've been doing lately, but what have you been doing that makes you happy? And that may be, you know, mowing others' lawns, but if there's a few things that stick out to you that you've been doing in quarantine, who do you do it with and why do you enjoy it? And how did that, how did it start? Well, I do a lot of it with people in our church and, um, and with my wife. And, you know, sometimes I do it for a very selfish motive. feels good to help other people. I think that's just how we're wired as humans. When we have help, can we help people? That, that, that helping carries with it an interior joy, a sense of usefulness of being needed, which I don't, uh, you know, I've known people in my life who don't do for others, and they're generally not happy people. The happiest people I've ever met are the people who have committed their lives to making this world better for others. Uh, and uh, and I found that to be true in my own personal life, that that is really the way to authentic joy. It isn't stuff, it isn't power, it isn't fame, it's what have you done for others, and that that's where the joy in life is. Mm -hmm. Very true. This is our last question. It's a pretty short interview, but I make up a lot of words in my day-to-day -day life, whether it's in discussions or just kind of stumbling over words that are real. If you could make up one word to describe how you feel when you are giving to others and devoting that time to the community and the people around you, what would it be? Oh, I don't know that I can make up a word. I feel, <laughs> I feel, I feel full. Mm -hmm. I feel I just feel deeply satisfied, like I've had a wonderful, delicious meal, and I'm pushing back from the table, and there's been wonderful conversation and delicious food from sharing, and I just feel full. Uh, I haven't yet figured out a word for that, but that's, uh, <laughs> that's the feeling. <laughs> it's a very, it's a good description. <laughs> it's yeah, not a super yeah. serious question, so you don't need to <laughs> worry yourself too much about I, it. I did invent a word once, and I've been trying to get it used. This happened when I was in my uh, late 20s, and I went with two friends and their wives down for a week in Florida, and on spring break, we were all in graduate school together. And we were arguing just to argue, just to have something to pass the time with. Mm -hmm. So one person would 
take a stand on something and the other two would argue against it. And we came up with the word Turkacious. And Turkacious became just argument for the sake of argument. And so I keep trying to use the word Turkacious. And I've even put it in a book once and my editor struck it out and he said, there's no such word as the word Turkacious. I said, no, but there needs to be. <laughs> I said, in every word that's ever been got started this way, someone invented it. And then it became a word through repeated use. I said, so this is my effort to use the word Turkacious. And he said, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> to ask, is tertatious a verb or a noun or an adjective? Um, well, let's say so. If, my, if I'm arguing with my friend, he says, Phil, you're just being tertatious. What would that be? An adjective? Yes, or an, an adjective. <laughs> an adjective? Yeah, so it's an adjective. Okay, okay. I would hate to use it the wrong way. I think I'll, we'll have yeah. to start using tertatious around here. <laughs> please, please use it in your podcast. <laughs> Definitely will. That's the word of the week. Turkacious. <laughs> I would. I hope to see it in a book of yours, maybe in the future. There you go. <laughs> oh, well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for letting me call and ask about what you've done and what you're doing. Good, good talking to you. Tell all your family we said hello. I definitely will. You tell your family the Gilbert said hello as well. Okay. You take care now. Thank you. You too. Have a great day. Bye bye. Isn't he such a great presence? I love hearing from him. Now, our next segment for this week is the song of the week. As you know, if you may have listened to the original Laney Train up at Purdue, that was my radio show, I was not afraid of a bit of a throwback, especially if it was some 90s rap. And the song of this week has to be Sabotage by the Beastie Boys. Typically, that's not my style. Know that I'm not really into screamo or metal, heavy metal type of music. But it is just so good and I want to work out to it all the time. I've been listening to Intergalactic and What You Want and Sabotage. Sabotage is my main motivator right now, so I highly recommend listening to Sabotage by the Beastie Boys, and if you get the chance, and if you have Apple TV, I highly recommend watching their documentary that they have. They tell their story about how they became a band, and that just got me back on to listening to their music. When I was younger, I think maybe eight or nine, my dad bought one of those best of sort of albums where they take songs from older artists and then uh, make the quality better, and then put them all back on an album and it's like their greatest hits and he got one for the Beastie Boys and we listened to it all the time when I was younger and I knew all the words to Brass Monkey and I got my friends onto it as well so Brass Monkey definitely was my gateway to Beastie Boys but now I highly recommend listening to Sabotage it came out quite a bit later in their career very, very good. And the Bible verse of the week is a bit more of a passage of the week than usual. It's longer. They're both out of Proverbs, but the first set of verses is Proverbs 8, 10, and 11, which reads, Choose my instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than choice gold, 
for wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. In the second set of verses, Proverbs 8, 24 through 27, that read, When there were no watery depths, I was given birth. When there were no springs overflowing with water. Before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the world, or its fields, or any of the dust of the earth, I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep. And that second passage is more from the point of view of wisdom, being sort of said by wisdom, and I wrote a note when I read these two verses that wisdom was created before any tangible thing, therefore it's worth more than any tangible thing. And I think that that is very, very relevant in today's interview just because of the wisdom that Mr. Goley was able to share. And to hear that spoken is very refreshing and comforting. I found these verses especially relevant to this interview, so I thought that I should share them. This brings us to the end of our episode. Thank you so much for listening. We are one week closer to being out of quarantine. But while we're in quarantine, make sure to make our moms feel special. I hope all of you stay healthy. Don't forget to tell someone you love them today or tomorrow, especially your mom tomorrow. In fact, I'm gonna go hang out with my mom right now. You guys stay positive and stay classy. You'll hear from me next week.